Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Dojcin Živadinović. I am from Croatia, but I'm a student at Andrews University, where I'm finishing my doctoral dissertation. I want to welcome you to our symposium for, uh, for women's ordination. In this presentation, I, I was given myself a task to make a constructive criticism of a particularly well-written paper called Should Women Be Ordained as Pastored? All Testament Considerations. That paper was presented at the Theology of Ordination Study Committee on July 22nd and 24 last year, 2013. It's one of the best papers pro-women's ordination. It is a very hot topic in our church and unfortunately is dividing us as a church. And we, want, we don't want a division. We want to be united. And in this presentation, I want to give a constructive and loving criticism of that particular paper. Before I start my presentation, I want to make sure that I'm not attacking or offending anybody who supports this view or people who wrote this particular article, especially not the authors of presentation. This is not us versus them. We're all together. We all believe in the three angels' message. We all believe in our Adventist truths. We believe Jesus is coming soon. We just want to figure this out so we can serve better to our Lord Jesus. So this is us and us. We want to understand the truth, and we are just discussing this in a civil, polite manner, different ways of seeing the scriptures. Um, with that being said as well, before I start my presentation, I don't want my force of arguments and, uh, or anybody's forces of arguments to determine, uh, to persuade anybody. It's not the arguments that will persuade anybody, and we try to argue this issue a lot. But the spirit of prophecy has told us that it's not the force of the argument, but the force of the Holy Spirit Amen. that will convert to souls. And at this point, I really want to ask for the Holy Spirit as we can bow our heads, and especially those who are watching on Internet, through YouTube and other networks, I pray that you open your hearts to the Holy Spirit through prayer. Let us bow our heads. Father God, thank you for being in our midst. I pray, for our Father, that you give us your spirit, that we can understand the truth. Amen. Father, give us loving heart to love one another because love is the central doctrine of Scripture. Women's ordination is an extension of headship principle, which you have also given in your love as well. So we want to understand that aspect of your love. Please help us to understand the truth, and I pray for your Holy Spirit to touch our hearts and not arguments. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. This is a, a very large paper that I'm uh, analyzing. The title of the paper is, again, Should Women Be Ordained as Pastors? Question mark. Old Testament Considerations. And that paper, you can find it on a General Conference um, Adventist Archives. You can freely download it and, and read it. And uh, with its 88 pages, almost 330 footnotes, and 22-page-long bibliography, this voluminous paper is arguably one of the best, if not the best paper, presented by a proponent of women's ordination to the Theology of the Nation Study Committee. The committee is appointed by the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists for the purpose of addressing issues relative to ordination and gender roles in ministry. And this paper is considered as one of the best and representative defense of the pro-woman ordination camp. And, uh, and as such, it deserves a special treatment and analysis. Uh, so as I said, this paper can be found on Adventist archives, and you can download it. However, in spite of its volume and much positive insight, the paper presents some major challenges to our Adventist hermeneutics. For the purposes of identification, I will now subsequently refer to this paper as document S, because it starts with letter S, should women be ordained. So I'm just going to refer to this paper as document S, because I'm going to talk a lot about it. This document contains an, a great number of also exegetical flaws. And I say this with hum humility, that we can all make errors and mistakes. And even in my analysis, I can make mistakes in, in pointing those exegetical flaws. But I believe there's some exegetical flaws and hermeneutical flaws, and we're going to discuss those. It is the purpose of this, of this presentation to expose exegetical and hermeneutical weaknesses of this document. 
uh, and to offer an evaluation of its major, ar major arguments in favor of the egalitarian, so-called egalitarian view of gender roles found in Genesis 1 to 3. So for the purposes of time, this presentation will not explore numerous positive points made in the paper. There's many good and positive points. The document also has many valuable conclusions and even refutes some weak arguments that are made by, op by proponent, opponents of women's ordination. Uh, we cannot just have time to mention all of those, but there are. Also, for the purpose of space and time, this paper will not comment upon every single weak or, or some erroneous argument advanced in this document. The focus of this presentation will remain in pointing some major exegetical and hermeneutical flaws. Uh, number one, so before I, we even start with hermeneutical flaws, one more time I want to say that it's not my intent to pass the judgment on the spirituality of the author or the authors of the writer of the article or those who support these conclusions. Uh, there is very good men in history of our church who have uh, had some views that were erroneous and Ellen White had to tell even James White and other great pioneers that they had some mistakes in their conclusions. And I'm not pretending I'm Ellen White here trying to point to those conclusions, but we are, is a brotherly dialogue trying to understand what the truth is. Amen. First, some hermeneutical flaws in spite of a very firm Adventist background and sincere commitment to the hermeneutical framework that was voted at the 1986 General Conference Annual Council entitled Methods of Bible Study, this document we call Document S, I call, is inhabited with several ideas that depart from the traditional Adventist hermeneutics. We have voted in 1986 something called Methods of Bible Study as a church, but this document does claim that it's fully supporting those, those, uh, this hermeneutics, but maybe unintentionally, it's departing from it. And we will look at this right now. Seventh-day Adventist exegesis firmly supports the view that both Old and New Testament are equally divinely, in, divinely guided in both their content and their final redaction and that both must be consulted as interpreting standards. In other ways, we can't just read writings of Moses without consulting the writings of Paul and vice versa. They're, they're complementing each other. So number one, the major hermeneutical flaw in the document S is this unfortunate tendency to limit the hermeneutic of the text solely on the scope of Genesis 1 to 3. And uh, this is uh, actually pandemic in uh, women ordination proponents approach. A lot of the proponents of women ordination have very often demonstrated this predisposition to divorce inspired texts from other texts discussing the role of women in the church and family and analyze them independently from the overall biblical consensus. Uh, this can be particularly be observed within the bounds of this document. In the lengthy exposition, the paper does not once make use of Paul's inspired reading of Genesis 1 to 3. We only have one inspired commentary besides Ellen White, inspired commentary in the Bible of the Genesis account and it's not used to interpret the text. And, and instead, there's a lot of other liberal scholars that are used to interpret Genesis 1 to 3. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, 8, man was not made from woman, but woman from man, he was referring to the creation of Eve in Genesis 2 from Adam. When Paul said Adam was formed first and then Eve, he's interpreting the order in creation in Genesis 1 and 2 again. When Paul affirmed women should remain quiet in churches like the law commands, what law is he referring to? He's referring to the, what is called the law, the Old Testament, and definitely the Torah, the first five books of Moses, most definitely Genesis 1 to 3. These texts, which in clearly interpret Genesis, are disappointingly not permitted to assist the presentation in this document. This tendency to divorce Moses and Paul falls subtly, maybe unintentionally, but it falls subtly into the category of historical critical scholarship. One could argue, okay, well, yes, but the scope of the paper was already big and it was not to cover the writings of Paul. Okay, fair. However, I would argue that within 330 footnotes of citing and quoting the opinions of different scholars, conservative and liberal, 
there could have been some place for inspired st statement of the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul. What do you think? <laughs> but besides, uh, the, the, the document quotes Ellen White extensively. So to, to say that it was just the cover writings of, of Moses and not go anywhere else, it's not a strong enough argument. So, but document is willing to do proper hermeneutic, scriptures with scripture, but it fails to do it appropriately. It doesn't really do it. It says, I want to do scripture with scripture. I want to compare all the Bible evidence, but it fails to do it. This leads me to a second hermeneutical problem with this article. There is an extensive usage of critical feminist scholarship in the paper. To be fair, the author quotes almost everything. So to be fair, he quotes almost everything that is written out there, a, a very great scholarship work. He, he read a lot of things, including a good number of legitimately conservative scholars, sure. However, uh, when it comes to crucial segments of the paper, the ratio is slanted, very slanted, which when discusses major arguments in regards to complementarian versus egalitarian view, he always quotes the egalitarian, critical, liberal feminist scholarship to support his views. He could have used Apostle Paul, as we already said. This is dangerous, I want to say, for an Adventist scholar to draw so heavily from the cisterns of Babylon, seeking support for his thesis. So just think about what kind of support are you getting for your conclusions? And when you see all this liberal, some people don't even believe in the authority of the Bible, and they're supporting what you have said, you start re-examining if you're saying it's really respecting the inspiration of the Word of God. Especially troubling is document's fondness for there is a certain hermeneutic that it's called redemptive movement hermeneutic, espoused by some evangelical scholars with feminist tendency. This is on page 28 of the document. You can check it for yourself and many other pages. The hermeneutic model called redemptive movement has found its most articulate defender in William J. Webb in his book, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, Documents Exploring the Hermeneutics of Cultural, Cultural Analysis. And this book is quoted about at least 10 times by the author of the document. Webb argues that the biblical teachings on male headship in marriage and male leadership in the church were simply points along the path toward an ethic superior to that described in Genesis. The Bible teachings on particular subjects, such as male headship, are only a point along the way towards the development of final and ultimate ethic. This leads to dangerous conclusions that the scripture is not enough conclusive on many ethical questions and that we need to go beyond the Bible in order to determine certain practices or beliefs in the church. This is the basic argument of Roman Catholicism for rejecting seven-day Sabbath. They say that it's not conclusive, it's just a point along the way, the truth is progressive and the Bible was a truth 2,000 years ago and now we're moving forward. And every single, so the headship, yes, it's in the Bible, but we move beyond. So this is a very dangerous argument and many Adventists are espousing this redemptive movement, uh, hermeneutics. So now I want to say that there's a good redemptive movement, if you want to call it that way, hermeneutics. Uh, it is a sort of scripture with scripture. Let me explain. Jesus said, uh, because of hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife on some minute reasons, but it wasn't so in the beginning. So Jesus is doing some movement. It's like, it wasn't so in the beginning. There was a curve of sin sinful practices because of the hardness of your heart. God tried to control that, like polygamy and wars and, and different things. And it wasn't God's will, but for temporary allowance was provided for the king, for example, when they wanted the king. But it wasn't so in the beginning. Jesus said, there's a principle, so I want you to go back to the beginning. So there's a good redemption movement. But what you have to prove is what was in the beginning. And also, not only that, you also have to prove that the Bible somewhere along the way in the Old Testament is saying, go to the beginning. But in the New Testament, the headship texts are not saying, oh, you know, this was, uh, this was uh, you know, male headship was just a point along the way, but now I want you to go where everybody is. Uh, the, the, the headship text in New Testament is even stronger. So they're not telling us, they're not giving us this movement 
redemption movement. So there is a good redemptive movement hermeneutics, but there is also sometimes it's abuse. You abuse this hermeneutic. The standard is often described in Eden. That's number one. And number two, New Testament, the Bible, or further inspiration, Ellen White, must mention the return to that standard. If there is no evidence of certain principle before the fall or in the New Testament, then we are falsely applying this principle. For example, polygamy, as I said, slavery, diet, what was in Eden. There must be in the Bible or in spirit of prophecy, there has to be some kind of indication that God wants us to go back to that original plan. So first, the author creates false paradigm that before the fall there was no headship. It's going to be the first thing. And how? By not quoting Paul, because Paul is clear on that. So first, there is one weakness of hermeneutics, and then you falsely apply a different hermeneutics to say that we need to remove beyond Genesis and we need to be maybe beyond the New Testament. The third and major hermeneutical problem with the document is an abuse of something that is called the narrative analysis of the text. Now let me explain what does it mean. The document S emphasizes what is called, quote, a close reading of the text. Nothing bad. It is approach where a great emphasis is placed on a literary devices and slight textual hints combined with the examination of structural and aesthetical features of the narrative. Okay, I'm losing you with all those big words. What this means, it's very simple. You look at the text, not so much, well, yeah, what the text says is important, but how the text is written, how it's packaged, what kind of aesthetical lyricism, what kind of structures are, are, are in the text, why is it used this word? So aesthetics tells the meaning. And we agree with that, fine, yes, but you, f you first have to read the plain reading of the text, amen? We cannot replace the nuances and little subtle hints with a major plain scripture with scripture reading of the text. So there's a plain reading of the text, there's comparison of scripture with scripture, and then you can also use some beauties of the text, that, but they need to support the plain reading of the Bible. And that's the problem of this article. It is not, it doesn't focus too enough on the plain reading of the text, but it focuses extensively on those nuances, and those nuances sometimes can be interpreted into the way you want, because they're not supported by the major body of the plain reading of the text. And we'll see some, I'll give this examples. Now I'm just laying down just the three main hermeneutical errors, and then we'll go to the examples. Narrative analysis, um, such as uh, Robert Alter, and J.P. Falkelman, those are Jewish authors who are, who are advocating for the return to the scripture because the scripture has all those beautiful nuances. They argue that the meaning of the text is veiled in the fashion the text is written. So there's a couple of, couple of writers that, um, that are supporting this uh, approach. And it, and it can be used in a good way. And it can be useful. This analysis called narrative, narrative analysis can be useful in pointing to hidden hints and subtle nuances of the text, but those nuances and minor hints must corroborate with the plain, obvious, literal, historical reading of the inspired writings. So the three problems that we saw, selective reading of the scripture, reading just Moses, not, not, not reading what Paul says about Moses. Number two, misuse of the redemptive movement hermeneutics, leading to false conclusions that Bible is moving us towards this fictive no headship scenario. And three, abuse of narrative analysis of the Bible, focusing on subtleties and nuances of the text that can be easily misinterpreted without comparing with the overall consensus of the scripture. So let's go to some examples of how those her hermeneutical flaws play out in the article. And I call them exegetical errors now at this point. When you apply hermeneutics wrongly, you get to with exegetical aberrations. So due, due to these three hermeneutical flaws, Without protection from the New Testament revelation, document S becomes extremely vulnerable to a host of exegetical mistakes. I will point about five of mistakes before the fall and maybe eight if we have time after the fall. A, Adam and Eve's relationship before the fall. Before the fall into sin, the issue of headship between Adam and Eve is not directly addressed. It's not the point of the text. 
it's not the major I, point of the text. So there, there's going to be hints and nuances that we will see there's a headship uh, principle. There's some unspoken uh, hints that clearly point towards Adam representative leadership. But document S attempts to twist these hints and portray them either as irrelevant or inconclusive. For example, the name of Adam, his name, and just, just his name and his primacy in creation. One of the first neglect and problems in the document is the failure to acknowledge the Adam representative status in creation. He's created first. Focused so much upon the fact the Hebrew word Adam does not mean man, but rather human being, which is true. He loses from sight the fact that the entire human race is called Adam. So, for example, the name of, of Adam and Eve is the man is called Adam, the woman is called Eve, their gender is Ish, Isha, male, female, and their kind is Adam. So the entire race is called by the first name of the first male. The first male obviously represents the entire race. His name is a race. Human race is in his name. Just, an, just a first hint, very clearly showing that Adam is representing the entire human race. Helen White agrees. She says, a creation, it was Adam, not Eve, who was given the responsibility of being the head, the Lord, the representative of the whole human family, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 48. So Adam, when he was created, he was created, quote, representative of the whole human family. At that point, the whole human family was just Adam and Eve. So if he is the representative of the whole human family, then he is the head of that family. Document S also denies the fact that Adam being created first has any significance in the, in the, in, there's no, oh, so what if he's created first? There's no significance. But this conclusion contradicts Apostle Paul. Again, this is the problem. You're not, you, know, you don't quote, you just quote your own wisdom. You don't quote Apostle Paul, who does place importance upon the other creation. He says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. First Timothy 2.13. As already noted, the document will avoid Paul's argument for the rest of the paper. Naturally. Eve, Eve was made out of Adam. And this is an interesting one. Document S also doesn't see any headship significance in Eve being derived from Adam. He actually argues that Adam also was derived from the earth, from the ground. That doesn't mean that the ground is, is the, the earth is at the head. At the head. So you're like, okay, well, this seems kind of like, okay, Seems like a good argument, right? But in reality, it, there's a false paradigm. That even the Hebrew, if you look at the Hebrew terms, the use for Adam being formed from the dust, and the term that Eve was derived is a completely different Hebrew verbs, denoting different actions. Uh, Eve, it says, she was, Adam was formed, vayetzer in Hebrew, out of the ground, while woman was made or constructed out of, so even the, the Hebrew language does not support the paradigm. Uh, Actually, if you take this to a logical conclusions, you will actually say, come to the feminist idea that the woman is, is on top. Why? Because God told Adam, subjugate the earth. So if he derived from the earth, and then he needs to subjugate it, and then Eve, who derived from Adam, she needs to subjugate him too. If you follow that argument. Obviously, that's not the argument to follow. And instead of speculating, like from the little evidence that we have in Genesis 2, let us just consult the rest of the inspiration. Amen. Apostle Paul places clear importance upon the fact that man was not made from woman, but woman was made from man. Paul confirms that Eve's coming out of Adam hints towards the functional subordination. This is important words I want you to discuss. There's something called ontological subordination and functional. So what does that mean? Ontological in Greek, ontos means essence, being. We do not believe that women are ontologically inferior or subordinated, I mean their essence, in their being, they're inferior. They're functionally subordinate. Some, that, means, that means that in essence and in being, we're equal. But for the purposes of the harmony, God has placed a functional subordination. Christ is functionally subordinating to Father, Amen. even though he's ontologically equal to the Father. And the image of God, he creates men and women, where also the wife is functionally willingly, not forcingly, she's willingly yielding the headship to the, so that they can be functional subordination for the purposes of the harmony. So instead of just speculating for a little evidence, 
Just read Paul. He's inspired, inspired uh, commentary. For man was not made from woman. For man was not made for a woman, but woman for man. And the, the woman was not made, and the man was not made from woman, but woman from man. He's discussing that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he's saying that the head, that the man is the head of the woman. And that's why it says that the women, when they pray and prophesy, they were putting the veil in that, cul in, in that culture. Putting the veil was like, okay, I'm praying and prophesying and teaching, but not as an elder. I'm not being over. And then he says, why? Because the man, because woman was created from man. So he places significance upon the fact that woman was created from man. And he's saying, because of that, the, that's why women do not take authority over their heads, over their husbands in the church. So he's, based on that reality, Paul concludes the head of woman is man. And that's the harmo harmony that, that the scripture is telling us. And so woman created as a help for the man is, again, we just mentioned that. Now, headship of God the Father. Now, this is a very important point. Now, this is not about women ordination anymore. Because in order to prove that women are, and there's no headship between men and women, you erase the distinctions between Christ and God the Father. So now you go with machete and you just go all over the place where you see some kind of subordination and headship and you want to erase it everywhere. So it's, it starts always with one error and when the other passages in the Bible are pointing to the error, you want to cut those pas passages as well and create more errors. So now it's a virus is spreading on, on Godhead, on the Trinity, the, the vi virus of his spreading. In this paper, Document S attacks the headship of God the Father, page 15. Document S attempts to prove that before the fall, there was no hint of headship or leadership within the Godhead. Okay? According to this logic, the human couple created in the image of God also should likewise exemplify no headship or leadership in either. Document S insists that Christ only assumed the functionally subordinate role after and during the entrance of sin in the world. But this is refuted by New Testament passages, which teach that Christ will forever remain functionally submitted to God. Let's read this, 1 Corinthians 15, 27, 28. The Bible says, For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. The Bible clearly says that the Christ, at the end of sin problem, he will be made subject, and the same word, in Greek, subject is used when women be subject to your husbands in the rest of the New Testament. It's a clear connection. It is unquestionable that in the Bible, Jesus is, is described as, as equal to God the Father ontologically by his essence. They're completely equal, but they have different roles. John chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 talk about Jesus being fully, eternally, divinely God. However, at the same time, the Bible clearly teaches that Christ willingly assumes a ministry of submission and service because that is the character of God. There is nothing wrong in submission and service in God's character. God loves to serve his creatures. And Christ represents the, the word or the thought of God being expressed to the angels and he assumes a, a subordination position to show the angels that God is not just I take, I take, I take. God also serves and subordinates. Thus, as an example of servanthood, Christ chooses to delegate the leadership to God the Father for the sake of the universe. The human couple, which is created in the image of God, hallelujah, was created for the very purpose of reflecting that relationship. And now we are efface, efface, effacing, we are eradicating the image of God by trying to follow feminist agenda which is actually, as we saw in the first presentation, spiritualism. It's the agenda of spiritism. The Bible clearly says, 1 Corinthians 11:3, that I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, 
and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Obviously, head, clear connection. The head of Christ, as the head of Christ is God, so the head of woman is man. But only man can be head if the Christ is in his head. Man as a leader needs to have Christ the Holy Spirit in him. Christ, hope of glory, needs to be in our men, in our leaders, in our pastors. In order, because without Christ, there's no spirit and leadership and women rebel, unfortunately. Ellen White affirmed Christ's ontological equality with the Divine Father, saying, Jesus is the source of power. He didn't get power. He is the source of power, the fountain of life. Acts of Apostles 4.78. However, she also stated that when Christ became incarnated as Jesus of Nazareth, he became the Son of God in a new sense. That means that before he became incarnated, he was already the Son of God in a different sense. Already took the role of Son, and there is a Father. Already took a subordinate position of a Son, even before he came to Nazareth is affirming, that is affirming that Christ was actually, in evangelism, page 615, she says that Christ was the eternal, self-existing Son. He was from eternity, self-existing, so ontologically equal as God, eternally equal as God, but functionally Son. Before sin and incarnation, God the Father, in the Godhead, they have given roles to each other. God the Father assumes the function of the leader and initiator. He sends the Son. In Ellen White, uh, Review and Herald, July 9, 1895, she says, the Eternal Father, now look at those verbs, the Eternal Father, the unchangeable one, gave His only begotten Son, tore from His bosom Him whom was made in the express image of His person, sent Him down to earth to reveal how greatly He loved mankind, God the Father is the one who sends, who tours, who initiates. And then we'll see later when Adam comes and, and he says, the man shall, man shall cleave, not cleave to his mother and father, but he will cleave to his wife. He initiates always. There's, a, there's a, this initiating leadership, a headship role that is given even to Adam. And we'll come to that just a little later. Son is perfectly equal and has all right and power to be the leader. But Jesus Christ shows the true character of God by voluntarily submitting to the leadership of the Father, exemplifying the spirit of submission and obedience bef before the angels. So the angels look at that subordination and they say, oh, that's my creator? Okay, I will subordinate too then. And that, is the, the, and that example that God gives to His creation, God wanted to see in our children as well. When the children, they see mother submitting and subordinating to the fathers, they understand, okay, they learn by, 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 by beholding, they become changed, and they learn, and they become then obedient to their parents, to the school, to the teachers, to the society. But when those roles are completely reversed, the children are rebellious, and then we have rebellious culture, we have rebellious uh, everything. We have rebellious children, we have rebellious in schools, we have shootings, we have things that are just coming from the head of Satan. And the final, before the fall, final argument before the fall, it says, man shall leave his father and mother. Now we're coming to this. Document S says, the fact that the Bible calls the man, and not the woman, to leave his mother and father, cleaving to his wife, further affirms the lack of male leadership within the original couple before the fall. This is strange. That, that there's a tangent in interpreting this text is strange. Because Genesis 2.24 is actually using a male gender as a default gender of writing. Using a male gender as a default gender of writing and saying, this is a lack of evidence that there is a male headship. It's very interesting. Another example of the Bible, Bible from the first to the last page, Bible talks about male headship. It's such an important doctrine. It's, it's incredible that people just say, oh, that's just something weird. From the first to the last page, the entire Bible, you see the Bible, it has, it's written, the Bible, all the pronouns and nouns, the endings, they have, it has masculine or, or feminine. It, but for, for a default gender, is always masculine. So for example, when you read the Ten Commandments, thou shall not kill, thou shall not commit adultery, thou 
is second person singular masculine because they have in Hebrew is masculine and feminine. So a default, that doesn't mean that women can do adultery or that they can steal or cheat or, 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 or break the Sabbath or other things, but the default gender is always male gender. Now, is God sexist? Is he chauvinist in his, he wrote with his finger Ten Commandments. Is God the greatest sexist in universe for saying, for writing in a male gender the commands for men and women? No, but he's just showing this is a representative gender. It's a representative gender of the humanity. And he's upholding the male headship. Um, this is also the case with all the nine commandments. And coming back to Genesis 2.24, the same feature occurs when man is told to leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The text in Genesis 2.24, by employing only the male gender, indicates man's responsibility, representative responsibility in the formation of the family unit. It is man who is responsible in formation of family unit. The entire Bible just keeps screaming, male headship, image of God, image of God. Adam in Genesis 2.24 recognizes his responsibility as a leader, and as soon as he meets Eve, Eve doesn't talk. The sentence structure highlights man's role of being the initiator, the instigator. Man's actions in relationship to his wife are described with active verbs, leave and cleave, while Eve acts as a passive or positive benefactor of Adam's initiative. So one more, Genesis 2.24, demonstrate man's leadership. We need leaders today in the formation and management of the families, even before the fall. Now we go after the fall. Relationship between man and woman after the fall. Was Eve a priest outside of Eden? How about that? Where do we have evidence for that in the Bible? On page 32, document S argues that after the fall, Eve became a priestess because she was clothed in the animal skins God pre prepared for her and her husband after the fall. Document S argues that the technical terms, it's very actually elaborate, the technical terms clothed him or them with coats, tunics of skin were only employed in the context of the sanctuary, clothing Aaron and the priests. So because those technical terms are only used in the context of sanctuary, that means that Eve was a priest. No matter what the rest of the Bible says, that there's no woman priest ever, 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 she's certainly priest. This is called the abuse of that little, those little nuances. Remember the nuances of the text? You just focus on those. You don't focus on the what the entire scripture says, the faulty hermeneutics. The main problem with this idea, but even let's, let me take this hermeneutics and go by it. But the main problem with this idea is not, it's not accurate. The same words or combination of these words, kotnot, labash, and hifil, it is a Hebrew, uh, Hebrew terms. They appear in the text describing the tunic of Tamar, David's daughter. Was she a priest? And in the clothing of the Shulamite, the wife of Solomon, was she a priest? Tamar and the Shulamite were not priestess, but they were high members of the royal family. Maybe, maybe the text is trying to suggest something else here. Now, I'm saying the proper lesson from this word study is that the combination of the words tunic and cloth can portray the bestowal of a special honor upon someone. God is covering them. He's placing a special honor upon them because those are specific words used in those contexts. Not necessarily due to a priestly function. The usage of terms tunics and clothing demonstrates a high honor bestowed upon Adam and Eve, even though they sinned. God covers them with a tunic of skin. And this skin, it's not just any skin. God still says, gave them authority to be rulers on the earth, even if, but if they remain covered by Jesus' sacrifice, symbolized by these skins. Just like Tamar and Shulamite, they received the garments of the queen, of the daughter's queen. Therefore, in the same time, God is putting the special tunics upon Adam and Eve. He said, you have lost the leadership of this earth, but under Jesus, under these skins, you are redeemed. And you get the special redemptive uh, tunics upon them back. So the, the text actually says something beautiful, that the man and woman can get back their kingly, that we can be kings and priests of the earth. G he's saying something beautiful 
that we can all have relationship with Jesus through those skins, and that God is putting back the role of kings of the earth, but only if we accept Jesus' death for us, those skins. There's something beautiful the text says, but nowhere it says that Eve is now the priest on top of, of head of Adam. So let me read something. The skins have nothing to do with them both being priests, because the, obviously those, those tunics could be also used not just only for priests. Later, let's compare scripture with scripture. Let's just not draw conclusions from a, one piece of verse. We see later that only male patriarchs performed sacrifices. Cain and Abel before the flood. Noah right after the flood. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob during the period of the patriarchs. Job. No sacrifices are recorded as having been offered by as the wife of Noah, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. Never you see there was wonderful matriarchs taking the role of leaders of the home and doing sacrifices. Why is that so if, the, if Eve was supposed to be a priest after? Was patriarchy something bad? Ellen White, this is what Ellen White says. She says, at the beginning, the father was constituted priest and magistrate. So was Eve priest? No, she says, at the beginning, the father was constituted priest and magistrate of his own family. Then came the patriarchal rule, which was like that of the family, but extended over a greater number. So this is even before patriarchs. This is about Cain and Abel, that period. In the beginning, the father was priest and magistrate. So obviously, Spirit of Prophecy is an inspiration telling us the beginning the father was a priest, not Eve. In Education 250, it says, It was God's plan for the members of the family. It is possible for us to live the life of Eden. This is, this is a very beautiful passage. It says, It is possible for us to live the life of Eden. Amen? Amen. How, how can we live the life of Eden? It was God's plan for the members of the family to be associated in the work and study, in worship and recreation, the father as priest of his household, and both father and mother as teachers and companions of their children. You want to go back to Eden? This is what back to Eden is. It's God's plan for father to be a priest and father and mother as teachers and companions of their children. If we want to go back to Eden, this is where we're going to. And this is the probably most... And this is the strongest case that in the Bible, God appointed men to be representatives. This is when God comes after the sin, and he says, Adam, where art thou? He, in, in his attempt, in, in the attempt to deny male headship, document S completely omits discussion about the man and woman's eyes being opened. After Adam ate the fruit, Eve ate the fruit, nothing happened. Adam eats the fruit, they go to sin. This obviously shows who is the, the, the responsible in the relationship. The, the huge document that we are discussing here, that covered almost all bases, very conspicuously don't, doesn't even mention this passage. Doesn't even mention this verse. Even mentions every single verse to that and then jumps and goes to another one. It is significant to see that nothing happened when Eve ate of the fruit. In the, in the New Testament, Apostle Paul repeatedly mentions Adam as the one who introduced sin in the world. Is that true? Who sinned first? But why does Paul says Adam introduced sin in the world? Because nothing happened when Eve sinned. Adam was obviously the, the, the representative of the couple. When he sinned, the leader did it, we all go down. It's a clear image. It's a clear evidence that, that, that Adam was created representative. The second important indicator of Adam's representative role is the fact that after Adam and Eve sinned and hid from God, the Lord doesn't call Adam and Eve. The Lord comes down and says, Adam, where art thou? Second person, singular, masculine. Where are you, Adam? He, he calls him out of the bush. He doesn't even call Eve and Adam and Eve out of the bush. He just calls Adam. He says, where are you? And then he starts talking with you, with him first. This demonstrates once more that Adam was the representative of the human race and the first one to be called to assume the responsibility for the sin. Oh, you, you want to be a leader? Assume the responsibility. 
This is what it means to be the leader. It's not just, oh, he's great, be, be leader. Leaders have other burdens. And actually, in footnote 109, and you can check it for yourself, the document actually admits our case. He just can't, the document cannot anymore go against the text. In an obscure footnote, not in the text, in a footnote 109, document actually admits that God called Adam, where are you? Because Adam exercised what document S terms representative headship. How, however, document S is quick to qualify this. Oh, this is a non-hierarchical type of headship. It is a headship. It is a representative, but it is a servant leadership. Of course it's servant leadership. No one denies that. <laughs> but document S does actually concedes the point. Because that's our point, and admits that Adam exercised a functional representative headship or leadership within the first couple, even before the fall. So I think we, need, we can stop the symposium right here. Because the other opposite side actually admits that there was headship before the fall. That there was a representative headship before the fall. And they're not going to say in, the main, in, in main body, but they were honest enough to put in a footnote. I found it. It's in footnote 109, you can see it. So we agree, we're on the same page, are we? Hope we are, it's not us versus them again. And then he shall rule over thee. The document S admits, okay, these words pronounced by God in Genesis 2, definitely involve the subjection, submission of the wife to the husband. Oh, okay, so we agree on this. He continues, it's inevitable. The force of the last line is unavoidable. He, your husband, shall rule over you. Page 16. Document S also admits that if exercised properly, this divine pronouncement concerning man's headship can be a blessing for the human family. Amen. Amen. Oh, so there's something we agree on. Praise God. However, he then proceeds to argue that man's headship is only temporary, and through the actions of divine grace designed to have re remedial, redempting function, God's promised blessing should be reverted to egalitarian. Reverted to what? But you just proved that there was a representative headship before. So you say, oh, however, we should be reverting to, oh, wait, it's a representative headship that we had before. So we need to, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. We have 10 more minutes. But there is no indication of redemptive changes or any hint of reversal of Genesis 3.16 when, he, when, he, when the Bible says, He shall rule over thee. Now, it's a very harsh word, rule over thee. And now we're going to see why is it such a strong, it's a, it's a term that is used for kings. Why is such a strong term used? Sometimes, it, it, it's not the Bible is not clear. It's the Bible is too clear. That is the problem. The problem of the Bible is that most arguments that come in favor of women of the nation says, well, Bible is too harsh. Not that the Bible is unclear, but the Bible is kind of too, not that it's unclear, but it's too clear. It's too strong. It can't be stronger. That's the problem. Well, that's exactly the point. It's very strong, so you can see it. And what it says here, after sin, Adam became a leader in a different sense. Before sin, there was no disharmony. But now, there's going to be difficulty. Genesis 1 and 2 describe the time when submission to God ordained authority was a no issue. We already discussed this. But after the fall, a woman became conscious of the law, and now it's necessary a new application to her in a sinful condition. Ellen White writes, in Selected Messages, Book 1, page 230, the law of God existed before the creation of man, or else Adam could not have sinned. After the transgression of Adam, the principles of the law were not changed, but were arranged and expressed to meet man in his fallen condition. Before the fall, Adam and Eve didn't even know there was a law, because they were in perfect harmony with the law. They were in perfect harmony with Adam's representative headship. They never disagreed. Eve never would disagree with Adam. So, but now there's going to be a bunch of disagreement because of sin and pride. I have my way, 
and God is telling him it's going to be tough. So there's a couple of curses. There's curse that man was, the curse is that man will now work with the sweat on his face, that the ground will give thorns, that the woman will have pain in pregnancy, and the ground will produce fruit with thorns. We already said that. And the, and the woman will have to submit. Those are, those are the curses. Now, I have a question. Did man wor have to work before the fall? Yes. But now what? Sweat. It's going to be more difficult. Did women give birth? Could they give birth before the fall? Be fruitful and multiply, God said. But now it's going to be more difficult. Was earth yielding fruits and produce before the fall? Yes, but now thorns and thistles. And the final curse, was there any headship before the fall? We saw that it was. Even the, uh, uh, the author of the article says it was represented headship. But now it's going to be more difficult because of sin and pride. And that's why God has put that. It's going to be more difficult. So this is another proof that there was a headship before the fall. And now we go into the patriarchs. And this is the, the I believe, respectfully, the weakest po po uh, point of the document. The statements on the nature of patriarchy are replete with contradictions. In one sentence, it claims that male headship in the time of the patriarchs was only, quote, a temporary measure, a temporary remed remedial measure. It says patriarchy was not evil in itself, but it was not the ultimate ideal. Okay, remember those words. words. Page 33 of the document says, the patriarchy is temporary, it's not evil in itself, but it's not the ideal. Okay, Ellen White says clearly that the, the patriarchal age, that was what God affirmed. I'm going to skip to those. I'm going to go to say, so was patriarchy bad or good? In the same breath, the, the document proceeds to argue later that the patriarchy actually did not exist. But it, it, it was only consisted over the children. Well, how, is it evil or is it good over the children? You, again, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. First, it says that the patriarchy, the document says in page 33, that the pa patriarchy is temporary. So uh, to control your children, it's uh, temporary. It is, it is not evil in itself, but it's not an ultimate ideal. So either is bad or is good. If it's good, but it's only over the children, or it's bad and it should, it's not an ultimate ideal. So you can't have both. And, and then there is another argument Document ends talks about Sarah and Abraham. I just want to mention this before we close. The uh, document continues disagreeing with himself through the article. First, he says that patriarchy was a true reality, a temporary measure, necessary evil. Then he says that the patriarchy only applied to children. If it applied to children, then it's not necessary evil. It's good. And finally, he actually says that, that patriarchy was not patriarchal at all, actually. But it was beautiful Edenic egalitarianism. I'm quoting. Well, wait, was it a patriarchy? Was it only over the children? Or was it egalitarianism? You gotta make up your mind. I don't understand. What, what is it, finally? To prove that, then he says, then he quotes a bunch of feminist authors who are quoting, who are, who are mentioning the relationship between Abraham and Sarah. According to, she's, he's quoting a feminist scholar, Janice Nunnally Cox affirming that Sarah, quote, she appears to say what she wants, when she wants, and Abraham at times responds in almost meek obedience, end quote. According to document S, Abraham must beg Sarah to say she is his sister. Sarah, quote, commands, end quote, Abraham, and when Sarah dies, Abraham can do nothing but weep. This is a, this is a relationship between Sarah and Abraham according to the text of, this, of, this, of the document that I'm quoting. A careful reading of the chapter describes the lives of Sarah and Abraham, in fact, a very different picture. It is true that the Bible portrays Abraham as a husband who respected and loved his wife. Amen? He was very careful in considering her needs and desires throughout his journeys in Canaan. Abraham did not force Sarah into saying she was his sister. 
When entreating with his wife, he used the Hebrew word na, which means please, could you say that you're my sister? All throughout Sarah's long years of barrenness, Abraham did not pursue other wives. Wonderful. He often listened to her counsel, and when Sarah died, he wept for her. All this is true and need not be refuted. Biblical complementarianism is not characterized by subjection, lack of individuality, or suppression of women's rights and needs. Although Sarah was far from perfect, she is consistently described in the book of Genesis as a great matriarch, a loving spouse, and a wise mother. All that withstanding, the biblical text clearly testifies that Abraham, not Sarah, was the priest and the real head of the household. Abraham is the one who leads his family from, Ur, Can uh, from Babylon all the way to Canaan. Abraham is the one who pitched the altar to the Lord and led in family worship, Genesis 12, 8, 34. When a family dispute occurs between Lot household and Abraham household, it is Abraham and Lot, the two male leaders who settle the dispute. Their women are not mentioned in the process. When the Lord visits Abraham, promising his son under the tree, Sarah is told to be in the tent, listening to the conversation from within the tent door which was behind Abraham. Now, this is my footnote. This is not to say that women need to be in the kitchen or in the tent. In fact, the Lord, Jesus actually asked Abraham, where's your wife Sarah? But as if he wanted to ask her, he wanted Sarah to be in open conversation. But the description of Sarah listening from within the tent hardly fits the picture of Sarah commanding Abraham and telling him what to do. Abraham is certainly free that to deny Sarah's bids. But later, this is when, what happens between Sarah and Abraham. Sarah actually asks Abraham to do sin and commit sin and sleep with Hagar. And in that process of, of doing sin, Abraham grants his wife request. And then the, 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 the author of the document says, the fact that Abraham granted Sarah's request means that ha Sarah had headship. Just because God answers and grants our request when we ask, does that mean we are on top of him or that we have representative headship over Jesus? That's, I don't think so. Or when our children ask us something, we grant their request, does it, what does that mean? Abraham is certainly free to deny Sarah's bid, but under the pressure of age, society, and willingness to please his childless wife, he succumbs in committing polygamous sin with Sarah. Like, like Adam and Eve, he falls because he was entreated. There's nothing holy or spiritual in this episode. This is an episode of Abraham's sin. We cannot use this episode to say this is the paradigm of man-woman relationship. It actually does not serve as an example of redemptive movement, husband-wife relationship for us to follow. And do I have just a minute to conclude? Or? Okay. And unfortunately, Apostle Peter, when he, let's, let's see what Apostle Peter says about the relationship between Abraham and Sarah. Apostle Peter, he quotes in 1 Peter, he says, In this way, in former times, the holy women who hoped to adorn themselves in God, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right. This is the New Testament. This is a grace dispensation. So we need to read Scripture with Scripture to see what the Scripture is de describing, the relationship between Abraham and Sarah, and who was the head in that patriarchal relationship. To conclude, and I have to scroll a couple of pages, Document S paper offers, I would say, a nuanced defense of the egalitarian positions, even though I portrayed many mistakes, I believe those are mistakes. Actually, there's a lot of things that's very nuanced. This is probably the last frontier of pro-ordination scholarship. However, as we have seen, it cannot help but having multiple weaknesses and some amazing reinterpretations of the Bible. The greatest weakness is abuse of the redemption movement trajectory, misuse of the literal analysis, and the lack of consideration of the New Testament-inspired writers. Genesis 1 and 2 offers plenty of evidence for the harmonious and beautiful relationship between Adam and Eve. This harmonious relationship is characterized by Adam's love for Eve and his initiative in building a new family unit. Eve was Adam's equal, created from his rib, not to dominate Adam, but not to be dominated by him either. 
Eve was formed with extreme beauty and high intelligence, bearing the image of God. Within this equality, God appointed Adam to be the servant leader and the principal representative of the couple. Adam's leadership exemplified the model of the first among equal. Every Christian household should represent a small garden of Eden. And remember, there's a quote from Ellen White says, let's go back to Eden. She says, let's have father as a priest. Every Christian household should represent a small garden filled with love, a miniature heaven on earth. Adam leadership is needed today. It is image of God. This type of leadership is required of modern leaders in Christian households. Those leaders need to have Christ first in their heads in order to be the heads. It was affirmed in Genesis and is affirmed by Paul and Peter. True servant leaders are needed in our homes today. May the Lord help us in these last days not to forget the ideal of leadership for our homes and churches, which is the image of divine headship. And let us resist with godly resolve the cultural pressures of unbiblical feminism. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.